Hello and welcome to Talking Euretina, the official podcast of the European Society of Retina Specialists. I'm Jonathan McRae. In this podcast, we bring you expert discussions and interviews with leaders from the world of retina and beyond. We'll also keep you up to date with the latest news from the society. If you'd like to comment on the podcast or request that we cover a specific topic, you can email us podcast at uretina.org. We'd love to hear from you. In this episode, Editor-in-Chief at Ophthalmologica, Professor Martin Zinkernagel returns to discuss two featured papers from Uretina's official journal with their authors in the area of choroiditis and macular degeneration. First though, just a reminder, on May 29th, we'll have the next Uretina educational webinar, this time on imaging. The webinar will be chaired by Professor Tunda Petto of Queen's University Belfast and Professor Stella Bujosevic of the University of Milan. The title is Deep Dive into Imaging for Non-Neovascular AMD and their European faculty includes Imre Lengel, Ricardo Sacconi, Gregor Reiter and Sandrine Zweifel. They're going to cover a range of issues, including multimodal imaging and AI-based risk assessment, as well as links between calcification and atrophy in AMD. You're sure to learn a lot from this Uretina educational webinar on imaging. That's on May 29th, 8pm CEST. Registration link is now live on the Uretina website. Now, on to our discussion. Ophthalmologica, the official journal of Uretina, regularly features research that can inform our daily practice. And so in this episode, we'll take a closer look at two editor picks from the journal. We're joined by Professor Martin Zingernagel from Incel Hospital in Switzerland. He's the editor-in-chief, and he will chair the discussion. Presenting their work are our faculty from the University Medical Centre in Utrecht, Dr. Jeanette Usawarde van Noel and Evian de Groot. They're joined by Dr. Mathis Thibault from Red Cross University Hospital in Lyon, whose paper is on macular degeneration. Martin, it's great to have you back. You're very welcome. Over to you. Yeah, many thanks, Jonathan. Um, many thanks for joining uh, the faculty. So um, this podcast will discuss two articles which were recently published in Ophthalmologica, uh, one on uveitis and the other one on medical retina and uh, treatment strategies for neovascular AMD. And these articles were, in fact, editor choice articles and have been chosen because they uh, may impact our clinical decisions on retinal disease. So I'm now really looking forward to discuss these two articles with you. So let's have a look at the first article on idiopathic multifocal choroiditis and punctate inner choreopathy by Jeanette and Evian. Uh, can you give us a brief overview over the paper, what you studied and what the outcomes were? Yes, of course. Thank you for the kind introduction and thank you uh, for the opportunity to be able to discuss our paper here in this uh, podcast. So what we did in our study is that we uh, followed uh, patients with idiopathic multifocal choroiditis and punctate inner choroidopathy for two years to see what the course of disease is, uh, what kind of treatments we gave these patients and how many um, relapses of disease activity they had. Maybe it's uh, nice to have a short recap, but idiopathic multifocal choroiditis is not very common. So I will explain a little bit more about this disease. It is an, uh, a form of uveitis, it's considered a form of uveitis, and it is quite rare. 
and we see it mainly in patients uh, that are very young, mostly females. Over 90% of the patients is female, and a um, very high percentage of patients develop uh, secondary choroidal neovascularization. And moreover, there is a association with myopia. I believe in our study, over 85% of the patients were at least at some level myopic and still not known why specifically females are targeted or uh, how this relationship with myopia uh, really works. And there is currently still a knowledge gap um, in the literature on how these patients are treated, what best can be done and what in the natural course of disease is. So I think the main goal of this study was to share our experience with this patient group. We are in a referral center for UVI, these patients in the Netherlands. So we, we treat a lot of these patients. And in our current study, we followed over 80 of them. Uh, so the main goal is to share our experience in treating these patients. And our secondary goal was to identify risk factors that are associated with a higher relapse rate, uh, because we see a, a very high uh, heterogeneity between these patients. And I think it would be very useful for ophthalmologists to uh, can somehow predict um, when they first see the patients, whether these patients will have a, uh, a mild uh, course of disease or a very severe course of disease, so they can adjust the treatment beforehand. So what we did, we, we followed them for two years and we uh, looked how many relapses they had and explored if there were clinical factors that were associated with uh, the number of relapses. And we found that both a very high myopia is uh, associated with a higher number of relapses and the presence of uh, secondary choroidal neovascularization at the first presentation was also associated with a higher number of relapses. So I think that in, uh, in, in summary is uh, what we looked at. And we also studied uh, or explored the, the quality of life in this patient group because it wasn't done before. And I think especially since these are such young patients, it uh, is a very important uh, factor in also your treatment uh, of this group of patients. The study is, I must say, it's very impressive. And also the, the numbers are very impressive. Now, this was a prospective study, so this means that you set uh, the goals before, you know, starting the study. Uh, were there any difficulties in it being a prospective study? Did you have to adjust your questions during the study or was this quite fixed when you looked at the data? Uh, our study protocol was designed beforehand. And I think in our study, the patients didn't uh, have any interventions or any actions other than just the, the normal medical protocol. Um, so we, I, as a researcher, just looked at the background and uh, just saw what are the, our clinicians uh, wrote. And of course, we had the COVID pandemic, so that complicated things a, a little bit, but I would say not too much because most patients still uh, came to our uh, our clinic and uh, they were still allowed to have their eyes examined. So I, I, I think in the end, it wasn't such a problem uh, for this study. So what were the biggest difficulties in the study? Was it uh, to recruit the patients or was it to keep the patients adhering to the treatment? Or was it afterwards kind of to summarize this very heterogeneous group of patients, which you probably had with different sorts of treatments uh, with different, you know, eye conditions like myopia or gender. What were the most difficult parts of your study, in your opinion? I think, in my opinion, the most difficult part of the study was uh, defining an, a relapse. 
uh, a relapse of disease activity um, because it is not a common thing in literature now and we have decided to only call it a relapse if uh, somebody had questioned disease before so a lot of patients remain a sort of activity and it in our opinion would not be fair to call those relapses every time um, so I think the, the most uh, challenging part of the study was the design of the study. So uh, to design it correctly, to make sure that in the end you uh, can answer the questions you want to answer. And since it was it, it was a prospective study, but without intervention. So in, in, in that way, we didn't we couldn't change anything from the reality. So if patients were referred to another ophthalmologist, then it was that was the case. We it that wouldn't be changed just for this study. Mm -hmm. um, but in the end, I think maybe eight or nine patients uh, were lost to follow up. Uh, so around 10 percent. So I think it's uh, uh, that's not a lot. So that's that's very nice. Now, I have a question about the, the secondary choroidal neovascularization. How did you diagnose it and how did you treat it in this study? Were these patients treated with a certain treatment protocol? Was it treat and extend or was it a pro-renata regimen? For this question, I would like to give the word to uh, Jeanette uh, because she treats these patients. Uh, so I think it's best if she answers this uh, question. Well, we... Uh, consider a girdle neovascularization as a complication of an inflammatory uh, reactivity. So it's very difficult to conclude from the OCT whether it's a CNV or not if there's no exudative signs yet. So waiting until the exudative signs occur is not my style of treatment. So I think that I relatively used much imaging uh, to diagnose the girdle neovascularization to be sure that a subretinal lesion is not only inflammatory but also uh, needs antifentif injections. And that was our protocol before we started the study. I truly believe that you should treat both aspects of the disease. So anti-inflammatory uh, treatment and antifentif injections. And it's very difficult to say how many injections you will need because we uh, start some kind of steroidal uh, medication, whether uh, orally or periocularly. So during the tapering of the uh, steroids, uh, flare-up uh, is highly likely. So we choose uh, a very safe protocol of three uh, antifective injections every four weeks uh, from the start and then treat and extend but only with one injection so in AMD we are used to tapering slowly mm -hmm. but if the inflammatory activity uh, has been treated you don't need those injections so in our experience we think that tapering um, of extending the interval every two weeks is okay. So after three uh, loading injections, we give one injection every six weeks, one every eight weeks, one every 10 weeks. And then we decide together with the patient whether we can stop or not. And uh, the protocol has been designed because of the experience that that is enough. Some patients do want to to have the minimum of injections. And in our country, we are used to shared decision. They have a high, 
high influence on on the treatment if they don't want this regime they they were allowed to say well no i i i i just want to see whether three injections are okay then we had to to do a close uh, monitoring afterwards so it's it's a protocol but it's not that all patients were treated that way they they really want to influence um the way they are treated that's a little bit how we're used to <laughs> in our country and with this uh kind of patients they're young they're highly educated they think what is my uh wish and i listen to them yeah i mean this is often the problem with these studies that you have a nice protocol but in, in the end it's real life and and patients may not always agree on the study protocol or it doesn't really you know fit into their everyday life so sometimes uh, there will be a discrepancy in uh, between the protocol and and what you really do so when looking at uh, the uh, the submission process of the paper why did you choose to submit it to ophthalmologica because ophthalmologica Basically, okay. I mean, there we we're centered on on retinal diseases, but we're not, you know, primarily a uveitis uh, journal. I think the uh, the reason we we submitted it to Ophthalmologica is both because I uh, attended the um, Uretina conference in 2020, and I was really impressed by all the the talks, and uh, I really liked the mix of uh, subjects. And uh, secondly, I think also the target audience for our article is a retina specialist because at least here in the Netherlands a lot of these patients are still uh, currently treated by uh, retina specialists and not by uveitis specialists so I think the ophthalmologica would be a perfect journal to reach this uh, this audience so that is I think the yeah the main reason why we chose it mm-hmm. So in our country, we have the discussion about prophylactic treatment or not. And as a uveitis doctor, I'm used to prophylactic treatment. We don't want to have recurrences. And to my opinion, this clinical entity can achieve better results if you at least consider prophylactic treatment in more severe cases. And again, it's shared decision. So if the patient doesn't want to to take immunosuppressive drugs, then uh, that's okay with me. But I'm happy to show that taking care of these patients can really influence your results. And they really have a bad outcome if you say, well, check yourself and uh, make an appointment if you don't trust it. So if you really care about your patients, and we have a very small country, so it's quite easy for our patients to visit our clinic. That's that's our luck. (laughs) But if you really care about them and and, uh, decide to to give prophylactic treatment, you can have good results. And I think that might be new for some retina specialists. So I I really preferred a retina journal uh, above a UVIT journal. A question about the treatment. Uh, are you doing the treatment by yourself or are you uh, conferring with uh, rheumatologists in general if you treat these patients? No, that's that's a bit extraordinary in also in our country that in Utrecht, the, the hospital we are working in, uh, we do it ourselves. We have weekly meetings with the immunologists, with the rheumatologists to to have advice on difficult cases, on lab results, etc. But we are 
prescribing the medication ourselves and we have to discuss the side effects ourselves. So um, because the decision whether you want to have some side effects of systemic medication, you have to weigh against the eye risk. So I think it's, it is a good thing that it's in my hands to discuss that with the patient and that they hear it from one doctor. And they, if they prefer to, to go to an uh, internal medicine expert, then I try to arrange that if they want to have advice on the risks. But we have the backup of, of rheumatologists and immunologists uh, to prescribe the medication ourselves. Okay. Why did you choose to uh, include this uh, report on quality of life in the study? Was this something that interests you or is it something that you heard from the patients that they complain about, you know, losing quality of life? Prescribing systemic medication really influences your quality of life. Um, these are young patients who are not used to being a patient. So we noticed that taking medication really affects the quality of life. It's not only the fear of losing vision. Taking medication, doing the lab testing, the, the coping with the side effects, they are really a patient. And I really want to know whether we are doing the best thing it, it can be good for the eyes to do this way but if the patient is unhappy <laughs> then we have to reconsider what we're doing so their quality of life is quite affected by the disease and we compared it with some other uveitis um, entities and also in that in the anterior uveitis quality of life is rather affected so i uh, maybe we as eye doctors don't really know what happens to the patients it's it's really impressive no i agree i think it's very impressive the results and it's good yeah. that this has been investigated because uh, it has a huge impact on on patients yeah. uh, quality of life and life in general so i think it was excellent to include this now one last question for you two this was one of evian's phd projects i believe what i heard uh, what was your role, Evian, in this study? And do you have other projects uh, on uveitis or retinal disease in your PhD? Uh, yes, that's correct. It was part of my uh, my PhD, and I I think that my main role in this study was the the well, first of all, of course, the study design uh, beforehand and uh, during the study, the collection of data and the uh, statistical analysis, of course, and in the end, also the uh, the writing of the manuscript and um, submitting it, of course. So it's part of my PhD, and we also looked into how good DMARCH work. For example, we did a study on that. We looked into uh, adalimumab uh, and its effect on the disease. Um, we also explored how the course of disease is during pregnancy, because of course there are young, uh, mostly female patients, so they also get um, pregnant, of course. And um, we also did a study on how to best recognize disease activity on multimodal imaging. So we compared all sorts of uh, a model, a multimodal imaging to look for those specific variables that can best predict disease activity. So that were the main projects of, uh, of my PhD. Okay, fantastic. So I'm looking forward to receiving uh, more work from your group uh, at the journal. Uh, thanks a lot for, for answering all these questions. So we're going to shift over to Thibaut, who has uh, 
been uh, first author on a manuscript on uh, the effect of treatment regimen on the initial management of macular neovascularization subtypes in age-related macular degeneration. So Thibaut, could you explain what uh, you did in this study, what the goal of the study was and, and the, the, the outcomes in just a couple of sentences? Yes, thank you for the opportunity to participate to this uh, podcast. So as you know, there is a three uh, macular neovascularization subtypes described uh, in AMD. You have the type 1, previously called uh, occult uh, CNV. You have the type 2, previously called the visible CNV, and the type 3, previously called retinal angiomatous proliferation. And there is also a fourth MNV subtype uh, called the mixed lesion associated type 1 and type 2 uh, neovascularization. So uh, nowadays we have to call a neovascularly in AMD macular neovascularization and not choroidal neovascularization to include the type 3 neovessels which originated not from the choroid, but from the inner retina. So the aim of this study was to evaluate the uh, visual and anatomical outcome associated with initial treatment regimen individualization, so PRN or treat and extend, according to the MNV subtype in AMD. The secondary objective was to compare the treatment burden between each MNV subtype so we take all consecutive treatment naive patients with a diagnosis of neovascular AMD in some referral centers in the Rhône-Alpes region of France who have followed up for a minimum of one year and who underwent uh, at least the three loading, loading doses injections of uh, anti-VGF. So we know that each MNV subtype has different outcomes and prognosis. Type 1 has the better outcomes but required many injections. At the opposite, the types 2 and mixed lesions have the worst outcomes and required many injections the first year, but not the second year, as suggested by the mean delay between the two last injections in our study, which are approximately is, it's, uh, uh, for type 2, uh, um, three months between two injections. And type 3 requires less injections than other subtypes and has good outcome. However, the development of atrophy in type 3 is higher for the subtypes than others. So these different prognosis between subtypes could influence the treatment regimen and follow-up for each MNV subtype. For instance, as type 1 required many anti-VEGF injections, a treat and extend regimen could be done just after the loading dose to decrease the treatment burden. At the opposite, the type 3 required less injections and for some stages, some patients required only three loading doses and do not require any other injection during the year, like a happy few. So for this patient, an initial observation period after the loading dose, like a PRN, could be decided. So this is the, the main outcome uh, of uh, our study. Okay, thank you very much. Um, uh, really uh, interesting study and uh, interesting results. Now, I was wondering how you, because in the paper you state that, you know, a certain uh, population was treated with treat and extend and a, a certain uh, proportion was treated with PRN. 
how did you decide on who was treated with PRN and who was treated according to treat and extend? Or was this just a temporal kind of decision that you switched from a PRN in the clinic to a treat and extend regimen during this period? Okay, so um, this is a retrospective study. So this is at the physician discretion. So if so, eyes uh, uh, were censored for the intra-group comparison, that is to say the analyzing, comparing the two treatment decisions, when there is a switch between a treatment regimen, not a switch between anti-VEGF, because we do not analyze the difference between the anti-VEGF. This is not the goal of the study. But uh, uh, for some analysis, analyzing the outcome for the uh, treatment regimen, we censored the patient at the time of a, a treatment regimen switch. So treat and extend uh, to PRN or PRN to treat and extend. But initially, this is the physician discretion. It's at the physician discretion to, to choose the, 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 the treatment regimen. Okay. And did you have any ways to correct this in your statistics? Uh, did you have a statistician looking at this? And that, how did you correct for this you know, yeah. factor? Yeah, sure. We have a statistician in, in our department, so he, he knows well the, 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 the ocular problem and all the, the, the stuff with the, with the retrospective study, because uh, we do many retrospective studies, so we, we do some uh, uh, multivariate analysis. So for this study, we, we, we use the um, multivariate model to adjust from uh, some uh, some factors who who can influence uh, which can influence the the results okay so in in your opinion what was the most uh, difficult part in this study was it the retrospective nature the heterogeneity of the data or even you know i think it fell into the covid time was this an issue in the study so uh, i think the the, the most uh, difficult part of the study was to classified very well the macular neovascularization because this is the, the, the main goal of our study. So this is a retrospective study. Uh, we are some referral centers in uh, retina. So um, many multimodal imaging are done uh, for uh, the diagnosis. For example, uh, in our center, we have more than uh, two-thirds of patients who had uh, ICGA for, the, for, for, for this study. So the, the most difficult part was to classify very precisely the, 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 the neovascularization. So there were two blinded specialists who classified this uh, macular neovascularization. And in case of disagreement, there is two other senior retinal specialists to help for, the, for um, a clean classification of these neovessels. Okay, so the classification at the beginning was the most uh, difficult thing, and the data acquisition afterwards was not not a big problem. What, did you have a student looking at the data, collecting the data? Yes, we have two. Um, there was two students who who look at the at the data. We have uh, electronic files. So um, in referral centers, these electronic files. Uh, are quite clean, so um, it's not uh, so difficult because we 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 do uh, many uh, many retrospective studies. So when we see patients, we know that uh, maybe in one year we we have to study this case. So uh, we anticipate this case very well. 
Okay. So tell me about ethics approval. Is this difficult in your country to get an ethics approval? How was it done in this study? Was the consent waived because of the retrospective nature? And, or did the ethics approval kind of cover all these you know, different studies you just mentioned that you do a lot of retrospective studies? Yes. So for, for retrospective study in France, this is not difficult to have uh, the ethics uh, approval. So we have to, to, to ask the patient for approval. But uh, in uh, our center, centers and in um, referral centers in, uh, in Rhône-Alpes region of France, um, at the first uh, visit of the patient, we ask for the, for the approval for, uh, to use the data for a future study. So uh, we, we check the, the patient file. And just when we done the study, we wrote a letter for the patient for his approval. And if he do not respond to this letter, it says that he, he approved the study. So okay. it's, quite, it's quite simple. That's, that's good. That's good. But we have good. we have to, 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 to talk to the patient the first visit. Yes, yes. Okay, okay. Now, uh, just two last questions. Um, you decided to submit the paper to Ophthalmologica. What was the reason that you decided for this journal? Uh, because it's a European journal, which rises in influence in a retinal specialist as an international meeting uh, retina. So we would like to be part of this uh, growing influence. Basic. And did you did you present the data at your retina, or um, was it like a, you know? Did you present the data at a retina meeting? Yes. Before? Um, uh, my student uh, in poster session. Okay, so it was uh, kind of presented at the at the meeting, and then you decided to publish it in the official journal of your retina. Now, tell me about the submission process. Was it quite easy, and how were the reviewers? Do you think they have uh, improved the, the manuscript? Were the reviewers fair? Yes, um, th this is uh, one of the reasons why we, we choose Ophthalmologica, um, a European journal, because um, we think that the, the, the review are fair and um, for a retrospective study, um, the, the European um, uh, journal uh, accept uh, more easily because in uh, US, for example, uh, retrospective studies are not uh, um, so well published because uh, they like uh, a prospective study. It's more easier to, to, to do a, a prospective study uh, in US. But uh, for the submission process, I found it relatively easy with an effective IA recognizing the main information in the manuscript. So um, it, it's quite easy, yes, comparing to other, so some other journals. And and how were the reviewers? Were they helpful? Yes, yes. I think it's improved the, the manuscript. Uh, there was some mistake in the first version, and a um, reviewer asked us to add some um, uh, some complementary analysis, and who who improved, which improved the the, the 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 manuscript. Yes. Okay. Yeah, and I think it has really improved and. Uh, it's now a very nice and a neat manuscript showing real-life data of real-life questions that we have in clinical routine. So congratulations to all of you for, 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 for this fantastic work. Thank you very much. Okay, so I think this was it. I'm not sure whether Jonathan will uh, jump in. Here he is. So 
I would thank uh, all of you for your participation and for, for answering the questions and for, for this great discussion. Thank you, Martin. And uh, thank you very much to Evian, Jeanette and Thibault. Very interesting discussion and great to highlight some of the work that's been submitted to Euretina's uh, official journal, Ophthalmologica. That's it for this episode of Talking Euretina. Don't forget, if you have something you would like us to cover, please do email us, podcast at euretina.org. We'll be back in two weeks with more cutting-edge research from the world of retina. I'll see you next time on Talking Euretina. Retina.